All right, thank you so much for being with us this day. Um, I know it's spring break, it's spring forward, and it's a Together Sunday. We have all of our students, our younger brothers and sisters in the room with us, so we're grateful. And uh, my name's Joanne. We're gonna dive into Ephesians chapter five, so if you have your Bible or your device, whether you're online, hi, online family, or you are here in our worship center, would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter five? We're gonna be looking at a short paragraph Ephesians 5, 15 through 20, and we're going to reach down into 21, and we're going to pull a little bit of that verse out there, and then Pastor Libin is going to kind of really talk about that next week. So before we dive in, um, I want to pray. Thank you. Lord, would you teach us now? You're the teacher. And uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can hear what you are saying to us as individuals and as a body of Christ. Work powerfully in our midst through your word and through um, how you and I have constructed this message together. Uh, Continue your amazing work in our church and in this world. We can easily get sidetracked by all the things that are wrong and today we focus on all the things that are right and all the many hopeful things that Jesus brings by his spirit into this world and into our lives. So we love you and we thank you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. 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 There you go. So I've been at Bentry since 1993. The church was just about 150 people and I was 12 years old. No, that's not true. But one of our elders back then was named Doc Lang. And not only could he rock a bow tie, not many men can do that, but he was a notable uh, cardiologist. He taught Uh, cardiac docs, young docs, how to do catheterizations and things like that. He was at Southwestern Medical School. He's gone on to bigger and better things. They don't live in this area anymore. They're out in West Texas. But I got to teach with Doc Lang, not in heart surgery, thank goodness, but uh, in uh, adult education. And he did something that I always marveled at, and I want to try it with you today, and that's to do a review. He would spend a few minutes in each new class that he was teaching going back to what we had just learned so that everybody could start at square one together with the new material. Sound good? All right, so we're going to try it. We're going to go look at Ephesians. Well, first we're going to look at Paul's letters, then Ephesians, and then I'm going to bring it up to speed in the section that we're in. So, all of Paul's letters, he wrote 14 in the New Testament, and many of them uh, kind of fall into two parts. The first part is usually a theology part, so it's what God is thinking, what he's doing, what Christ has done, heaven to earth kind of stuff. And then the second half of the letters is usually praxis, which is a funny way of saying practice. How do we put feet on that theology and walk it out? So Ephesians 1, Ephesians is a letter. Paul is writing it from prison to a group of people who live in Ephesus. That's why it's called the Ephesian letter. It's written to people in Ephesus. And Paul is writing from prison. And in Ephesians 1 through 3, it follows this pattern. And I have it up on the slide for you. Ephesians 1 through 3 revealed a mystery. This is a theology part. God's mission to save the world has a church. Now, we always think of the church having a mission, but did you know God's mission has a church? God is doing his work through the church. So whatever God's mission is, his will is, his cosmic purposes, the church is carrying those out. So God's mission to save the world has a church, and here's the definition of church. A global family of people united by faith in Jesus Christ, a new humanity operating as one body with Jesus as their head. 
So that's what he's revealing in Ephesians 1 through 3. What was never revealed before, that in the new covenant, there is a new people, a new humanity. Jew and Gentile become one, and they function as a body with Jesus, giving the commands and directing as the head. Now, Ephesians 4 through 6 is the practical section. It's going to show us how this church, this new humanity, actually walks out this theology. So the slide says, Ephesians 4 through 6 reveals the motivation, the means, and the methods of God's new humanity, the church, as we walk in relationship to God, each other, and the world. And what I left off is the spiritual realm, because we know from a couple of chapters ago in 3, that the church actually plays a role in witnessing to God's plan for the ages to the unseen spiritual world, which would be angels, the holy angels, and the demonic host. We'll see that in Ephesians chapter six in a couple of weeks. And now we get to this second section, so I'm gonna take you back to chapter four, and we're gonna talk about what, where we are, because we're dead in the middle. This section we're talking about today is right in the middle of this four through six. We're right in the sweet middle of it. So if you're all, all the way back to chapter four, there's a metaphor that Paul announces. He talks about the way we live as walking. And this is a Old Testament imagery as well. So when you think of walking step by step, this is an analogy or a metaphor for your life. So chapter four, verses one through 16, encourage us to walk consistently. And that consistency is between your life and your identity as a Christian. So the way that you live and the savior that you love and serve and belong to, those things should match. And then he goes on in verses 17 through 32 of chapter four, and he says we should walk differently. And in walking differently, he's referring to our past before we knew Christ. So our behavior should change just as our status changed when we became a Christian. We once were not believers and we lived a certain way. We are now believers, our status has changed. We are now saved, we now belong to Jesus, we're in Christ, so the behavior should be different. And it should be different from the world around us. Our ethics, our morals, the way that we do things should look and be different than the world around us. Then in chapter five, verses one through six, he says to walk lovingly. In fact, there's a beautiful phrase Paul uses. He says, live a life of love. All those L's, live a life of love. And just as Christ did. So love is to characterize our lives. And as a Christian for many years, this has become more and more my prayer. Lord, fill me with your love. Because love is an irresistible force. And the love of Christ moves things. It's a powerful force. And the love of Christ is uh, undervalued uh, maybe in when we ask for what God would empower us with. To empower with love is a powerful thing. Then chapter five, verses seven through 14 says we should walk brightly, I love that. He talks about Jesus being the light. Remember Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Well, guess what? If Jesus is the light of the world and we're his kids, we're like his little LED bulbs. You know, like we're everywhere. We shine brightly. Our lives are to reflect that light of Jesus Christ in us. In fact, he calls us children of light, and we should live as children of light, especially in a dark world. And now we get to the section that our paragraph is in, this chapter, 15, chapter 5, verses 15, through chapter 6, verse 9. So that's going to go into next week's teaching. 
And this is about walking wisely. Walking wisely. And our little paragraph, 15 to 21, has three commands. And I'm going to go old school on you, because I used to be an elementary school teacher. Uh, when I got to teach fifth graders, I quit while I still could. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if I got demoted to adults or promoted to adults, I'm not sure, but it sure was fun. I love my teaching years. But um, this, is, uh, this is teaching territory right here for an elementary school teacher. Give her a marker and a whiteboard and set her free, right? So we're going to go old school. I'm going to draw some pictures for you and hope that that really captivates us and keeps us together in this um, section. So here are the three commands. Remember, this is walking wisely. That's the overarching theme of this next section of which we are talking about the first part. And so we're walking carefully. We're walking understandingly, and we're walking overflowingly. And remember, walking is a metaphor for life. So we live carefully, we live with an understanding, a growing and deepening understanding, and we live with an overflow in our lives. So that's what we're going to talk about. So let's look at the first command, and that is to walk carefully. So he says, if we read this, the the scripture, it says, walk, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So that's the first command. Now, I think it's interesting that he starts out with pay careful attention then to how you walk, because what we would say is watch where you're walking. Isn't that what you say to your kids? Watch where you're walking, because they're gonna walk into something. He doesn't say where, and do you know why? Because Christians, your destination is already set. You don't have to know where you're walking, because first of all, you're located in Christ. If you know him, you're in Christ, that's your location. You're also in Carrollton right now, and in your seat, but you're in Christ. And your life is headed in Christ, to ultimately be with Christ. So your destination is already figured out. It's not where you're walking, it's how you're walking, how you're walking. So the picture I'm gonna draw for you are these memorable towers from Manhattan. The tallest buildings in the world were the World Trade Center towers. There was a South Tower and a North Tower. You remember the Trade Center towers? They were finished in 1973, a, a marvel of engineering. Between the two towers, they weren't actually side by side, they were a little, a little bit angled. There was 130 feet between them, and they were a quarter of a mile up in the sky, the tallest buildings in the world. A year after they were completed, a Frenchman named Philippe Petit and his team of cohorts uh, graciously broke in to one of the towers with a thousand pounds of equipment. And they eventually, during the night, strung a tightrope wire, he's a wire walker, and they strung it between the south and the north tower. They spanned 130 feet, it took them all night. Philippe didn't get any sleep. He was supposed, he was supposed to be finished much earlier, but the, the way they were gonna get the rope to the other building failed, so they had to come up with another plan. So without sleep, he changes his clothes, and somewhere in the morning, after the sun had risen, he picks up his balancing pole, and with his little slippers on and these dark black clothes, a quarter of a mile up in the sky, he steps on the wire. He goes and makes eight crossings. He crosses eight times. One time he lays down on his back and talks to the seagulls. 
and he reclines up there as the wind is blowing the wire. And then right before he gets down, my, the bottoms of my feet are tingling. I, anytime I think about heights. And uh, right, it started to rain a little bit, so he knew he had to get off. And then there were police, and so he was going to be arrested, which he was. <laughs> but um, he uh, knelt down on one knee while balancing with his pole. And he saluted to the crowd below. He looked down, saluting to the crowd below. Two things we can learn from Philippe. He did get arrested, so don't do that. <laughs> don't ever do it. He walked with balance, and he walked with concentration. I think this is a good word for us as we think about how carefully we should walk our Christian lives. To be balanced, passionate, yes, but to be balanced, to, to walk in a way that is not in any extreme, but is going in a balanced way. And also with concentration and intentionality. If you want to look at the movie made about this, it's called The Walk. It was made in 2015. And it'll show you the whole story. And then uh, watch how he holds the balancing pole. He never looks at his feet. He never looks at his feet. His feet are finding the way step by step. And that's the next word, walk. This is a Greek word that means step by step. That looks like my bad foot on the left. All right, step by step. Left foot, right foot. Left foot, right foot. Left foot, right foot. I count my steps every day. Maybe you do too. And it really is a metaphor for our life. Because you can say, I count, I did these many steps today, and everything I was doing, it still required steps. And this is what Philippe did. He just steps, just steps. I forgot to put him up here. You need to have the little guy up there. The pole looks like that. I can't believe he actually looked down, can you? Oh, my word. And he laid down. I, I don't even get that. Oh, man. I, it's hard to watch the movie if you have tingly bottoms of your feet like I do. So we just walk. The Christian life is a walk. It's a long walk in a fixed direction with your heavenly companion and your brothers and sisters. We overcomplicate it. It's a walk. It's step by step. It's intentional. It's balanced. You're there for it. You're not sleeping through it. You're alive and alert. You're aware and available. You're all those things. So he says, be careful then how you walk. Not as unwise, but wise. So there's an unwise and wise um, comparison. So let me just tell you that wise people know things, they know truth, and they do it. So they not only have it in their minds, but they actually practice it in their lives. That's what makes a wise person. Wisdom is knowledge applied. Simple definition. Wisdom is knowledge applied. So what do you think an unwise person is? You can call it out. I'm just up here. Okay, a person can be ignorant. They may not know. Okay, maybe he knows, but he doesn't do. Yeah, we're going to get to foolish in a minute. That's up there. It's another word for this unwise person. 
A lot of times, unwise people know things. It's not like they're devoid of knowledge, but they don't apply the knowledge that they have. So it's stuck up here somewhere and doesn't come out the feet or the heart. You probably know people like that. They have a lot of Bible knowledge, especially Bible people. This is, this is pretty endemic. We have a lot of stuff squirreled away up there, but we're so heavenly minded, we're kind of no earthly good. Does that make sense, right? Like walking it out is the step that we missed. So he said, don't be like that. Don't be like the unwise, but be like the wise who know things that actually do them in practice. And then he says, making most of the time. So I'm going to draw a little clock here. There's a little thing up there, and this looks like an old clock with hands. Remember those? Okay. You know, I, this is so bad, I had to really think about where the numbers are. Yeah, because we don't do that anymore, do we? And you know what? That's not what this word time means. When we think time, we think clock time, watch time, the minutes of my life, the hours in my day. That's not what Paul is saying. He uses another word, which is kairos. The word for time, clock time, is chronos, where we get our word chronological. That's marking time. This is kairos. This is seasons. This is the opportune time. This is the fork in the road that makes all the difference in the world. This is seeing an opportunity. So it's not the hours and minutes of your day, it's the opportunities in your life. It's the opportunities in your life. There's these uh, beautiful guys in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 12.32, talks about the men of Issachar. Issachar was a tribe of the ancient Israelites. And these men of Issachar were known, it says, they knew how to read the times. They knew about the times, the seasons. Not spring, summer, winter, fall, but the seasons of what was happening in Israel and in the world. And he said, and they knew what Israel should do. They were wise men. They could read the times, what was happening around them, and then they knew how to respond to those times. I want that for myself, don't you? I want to be a person who can read the seasons and the opportunities and move into them. To buy up the opportunities in my life like a blue light special at Kmart, right? I'm going to go grab that thing. That's what it's talking about. Because, he says, the days are evil. Evil just is another word for um, hurtful, grievous, laborious, annoying is in there. So these are hard and hurtful times. And I think... Christians from every eon have thought they were living in evil days, right? But I think what we're missing is that evil days offer unique opportunities. Think about it. If we were to shut all the lights off in this room and I would just have my cell phone flashlight on up here, you would be amazed at how bright that is in the darkness. And then if we all switched on our iPhone or... If you have a Google phone, I guess you have a flashlight too. Um, it, would, it would be an amazing amount of light. Why? Because light shines its brightest in the dark. See, I think we spend a lot of time ruminating, thinking, and complaining about how dark the days are, and we completely miss the opportunities that they bring. And we're heading into an election season. That's going to be some dark days, right? So let's think differently. So 
go with me here and say, whenever I start to think about how dark the days are becoming and I begin to complain about it, I'm going to stop and go, hey, Holy Spirit, show me an opportunity. Because evil days offer unique opportunities that no other days. They offer a way for you to shine like your Savior, to live as a child of light in a dark place. So, to walk wisely is to walk carefully. Now here's the second command. To walk wisely is to walk understandingly. So now he says, don't be foolish. Foolish is this. It's kind of an Old Testament-y word for someone who may know some things but doesn't do them, or may be ignorant of things, doesn't want to learn them. This is a person who kind of sleepwalks through their life, their Christian life. Maybe it's a person who's rejecting what they know or ignoring it altogether. There's many, many things, but they're just kind of sitting there not doing anything with what they have. So they know, but they don't do. Don't be like that, he says, if you want to walk wisely. But, and there's a contrast, those are beautiful. That's a beautiful word in scripture, that those three little letters, B-U-T, because it's a contrast. Now here he's telling you the kind of person you should be. But understand, he says, what the will of the Lord is. This word understand is beautiful. So I'm gonna draw this guy. Let me draw this guy like on the waves. So this foolish guy, he's like a body, not even a surfer, man. He's floating. He's a floater. So he's floating on the waves, and he's okay about it, because it feels good to float. The dead man float, right? There he is. He's just floating. That's the foolish man. Now, this guy, be this guy, the understanding guy. Here's his diving platform. There's the diving board. And this guy, oh, he's not falling for that stuff. He's going right down into the water. He's diving off, looks like he has a broken leg, but he's diving. He's diving into the water below. He wants to go deep. He wants to dive deep. That's what this word means. It means to synthesize things, to put the puzzle pieces together, to think deeply and to go deeper into things. So now Paul is saying, walk carefully, but also walk understandingly, and walk understandingly and go deeper in the things of God. Let me ask you, this is a rhetorical question, so I don't answer, could you go deeper? I could go deeper. Sometimes I find myself on autopilot, to be honest with you. And I coast. You ever put yourself in neutral spiritually and just kind of coast? <laughs> Paul is saying, go deeper. Don't content yourself with where you are. Go deeper. Dive in. There's more to God than you will ever imagine. You can't exhaust him. There's always more. There's always more of him, so dive deeply. And then he says, understand what the Lord's will is. Now, as soon as we see the Lord's will, we personalize it. And we ask questions like, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to go to college? Where are we going to travel after all the kids leave? What new job am I going to take? What, um, what should I uh, speak on this next week in this thing I've got going on? Like, we're asking about ourselves. And this is not the intention of what the will of the Lord is. So, I borrowed a puzzle, because I don't have one. 
and I got a cat puzzle. I'm not a cat person, but I'm holding it. It's as close to a cat as I want to be. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry. I offended all you cat people. Sorry. Um, so this puzzle is great because what, what we do with a puzzle, we have individual pieces, right? And then we have the box top that shows us the big picture. And the way we know, this has demonic cat eyes, so there's the, I know it's the eyeballs, I think it's the eyeballs of this cat right here. And I only know this because I see the box. Now I know where my piece fits in. Unfortunately, it's in the middle, not an edge piece, so I'm kind of toast now, but, but at least I can see where it's going. So here's what Paul is saying. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Not this piece yet, this. Dive back into chapters one through three and get to know heaven to earth plans that God has for all people. His global purposes, the mission of the church of which you are a part. Because when you get familiar with the box top of the Lord's will, the big picture, the meta-narrative, then you'll be able to understand how your individual piece fits in. Does that make sense? So, be as earnest about the bigger picture of God's will than you are about the individual questions about how you fit in. Because this will drive this. Okay? Is that understandable? So understand what the will of the Lord is. That's beautiful. So we looked at the puzzle box and the puzzle piece. And now we get over to the last um, command, and it's to live overflowingly. So if you're living carefully and you're living understandingly, you're walking in this way, carefully, intentionally, with a deeper understanding, then you are really in a position to live overflowingly. You're going to see your need for overflow and you're going to be able to live in that overflow. And here's what this verse says. It says, and don't get drunk it says, with wine. So we're going to draw a little wine glass here. And you'll have to tell me whether it's white or red. I don't know. I know there are special glasses. But you know what? It's not wine only. It could be don't get drunk with power. Don't get drunk with pride. Don't get drunk with. Now, wine was prevalent. In fact, the, the, uh, in Ephesus, there was a religious festival for the god of wine, Dionysius. And his devotees, the people who followed this false god Dionysius, once a year would get blindly drunk. And the more they got drunk, the more they felt they were in union or worshiping their god. This is likely the picture that Paul has in his mind, why he's using wine. But there's so many other things that we can allow to control us. Now, I'm not going to preach a sermon on should Christians drink. But I can tell you from this verse, do not get drunk with wine. That drunkenness is forbidden for a believer in Christ. I don't know if you remember, but my dad uh, was an alcoholic. He's gone home to be with the Lord. Um, so I ra was raised in a family by um, a schizophrenic mother and an alcoholic father. And so our home was a little chaotic. I can remember when my dad, who frequently got drunk, 
but this time he was trying to turn. We lived on a cul-de-sac. He was making the turn around our neighbor's yard and he missed. He was going too fast. And he plowed over their fence and he took out their mailbox. And the police came and the neighbors came. And I remember my little brother, he was probably, maybe I was 10, so he was three or four. He was toddling around and he was trying to find me to kind of hold me and I, I couldn't even do that with him. I, I was so embarrassed. And I ran to the back of our house and my dad had built a big sandbox in the back under one of our big trees and I hid behind that tree and I practically buried myself in the sand and I cried my eyes out. I was so embarrassed by my father. Drunkenness is bad. Alcohol is a depressant, it's not a stimulant. Therefore, it might be fun getting inebriated, but being inebriated brings the worst out in you. And it makes you feel worse. My dad would always be depressed after these things because he could never remember what he did. That's why the Bible is saying, do not get drunk. Do not get drunk. And maybe yours isn't why. Maybe it's pride or power or money or whatever it is. Don't let that thing control you. There's a better way. So, but is here. Again, showing us a better way, the contrast. But, and then he says, be filled with the Spirit. Let me fill in the blanks. You could literally say this command this way. But be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So in the Greek, it's in the present tense. So it's continuous action. The continuous action is on us. We come continuously because we continuously need the filling of the Spirit. And it's also passive. It's in the passive voice because we are filled with or by, maybe your version says by, the Holy Spirit. So something is being done to us. It's passive. We can't fill ourselves. The Holy Spirit has to do it. So it's present in that we are continually coming repeatedly over and over again for the Holy Spirit's filling. And he is repeatedly filling us with his presence, with his power, with all of those things that we need. So let me draw this out in a picture. You can say, if this is a glass, I would fill it with fizzy water to represent the Spirit. Because fizzy water's alive. You know, there's all the bubbles and everything like that. So this is fizzy water, and I fill it up to the rim. And that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. See, because most of what the Holy Spirit does, we're not commanded to do anything with. So let me draw you some. So the Holy Spirit indwells us when we become a Christian, when we have faith in Christ, he comes into us and he indwells us. He makes his home in us. I like to say to people, you are the Holy Spirit's favorite address because he lives inside of you. He set up shop in you. And so he's there. And not only does he indwell us, but he seals us. So it's like a Ziploc bag. You're never going to lose his presence. God's presence, the presence of Christ through his spirit is always going to be in you. Never leave you or forsake you. You can't get rid of him. He can't leak out. All that kind of stuff is true. And then he does something that we can never even understand or feel. 
He's baptizing us or baptizes us. That would probably be the better way because it happens once. When we believe in Jesus, we're baptized into the body of Christ, that invisible church, the global invisible church. And baptism means identification. So when we become a Christian, Jesus, by his spirit, dunks us down into the church. And he identifies us as part of his body on earth. We don't feel it, but the Bible tells us that's what happens. Baptizing, and then he gives us gifts. So that as we are part of this body of Christ, we can actually take our puzzle piece and we can make a unique contribution with the gifts we're given by the Spirit for the eternal, amazing purposes of God. This is automatic. Holy Spirit just does it. We are receiving it. We don't even feel it. It's happened to us. We know theologically this is what takes place. But this, my friends, is volitional. This is a choice that we're making about what is going to control us. Because the parallel between getting drunk with wine and being filled with the Holy Spirit is who or what are you going to choose to control or overflow your life? My dad chose wine. That was his favorite thing. Gallons of it at a time. And it controlled his speech. It controlled his motion. He couldn't walk step by step. It controlled his driving. It controlled his words to us, his actions to us. And then he would wake up when that control was over. And all the damage for everybody else was still there, but he couldn't remember any of it. See, it brings out the worst in you, and then you feel worse than you ever have. But there's another way. It's to be filled by the Spirit. So we could say that this, the automatic stuff, gives us God's presence, because it does. God's presence is with us in those automatic things that the Holy Spirit does. He is always with us. The Holy Spirit's filling is more like a boat. I'll have to draw, draw it over here. It's more like a sailboat. Here's your little sail. Here comes the wind. Holy Spirit is called the wind in scripture. So here comes the wind. Fills your sail and you make progress. But you have to put your sail up to catch the wind. That's the filling of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, I want to make forward motion in that relationship, in my life, in my work, in my witness, in my wisdom. I want to make forward motion. I need you. I need you to control me, and I'm actively coming to you for that filling of the Spirit. Filling by the Spirit. He's both the means and the substance, because in him are all things. So this is the filling of the Spirit. We need the filling of the Spirit. In fact, I would say, I wrote it down this way, is that spiritual living requires Holy Spirit's filling. Spiritual living requires this. And there might be some of you hearing my voice and you never heard of the Holy Spirit's filling. Or maybe you heard erroneous teaching about it. 
Holy Spirit's filling is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in his empowering. He gives you, an, an, it's an empowering presence. He empowers you. Back in 2017, get this. I got this crazy invitation to be on Meet the Press. What the heck? They were like scuba diving at the bottom of the barrel, I'm telling you. So I don't even know how I got there, but I flew on a red eye up to Washington, D.C. on first class, never been in first class. They did my hair and makeup. I didn't even have to go on the show. That was enough for me. I've never had my hair and makeup done. I look pretty good. <laughs> and then I get to the green room. I have no idea who I'm with. T.D. Jakes walks in. Holy And then this famous rabbi, Rabbi Saperstein, nicest guy ever. So was T.D. Jakes. And they're like treating me like, hey, sister, how are you? You know, like I'm part of the conversation. I'm inside. I'm like, Holy Spirit, fill me. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Fill me with wisdom. <laughs> Fill me with something. <laughs> I honestly don't even know that I'm going to be able to follow the conversation. And you can look it up. It was somewhere in 2017 around Easter. I really haven't even looked at the video to know if I said anything coherent. <laughs> you can tell me later. Because I still haven't looked at it because I'm so afraid I didn't. But I think I followed the conversation. But I knew in that moment, in those moments, I needed the Holy Spirit's power. I have his presence. But I needed his power to speak and to think and to act and to, to move into that opportunity, to seize that moment, that time, that Kairos moment. Does that make sense? So we can come again and again and again for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Bible says. I'm not going to draw these, but let me read it to you. Here are the effects. Here's how you know, some of how you know. This is not the exhaustive list. But here's how you'll know you're filled with the Spirit. After you ask, watch for these things. It's in verses 19 through 21. So speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we're speaking through our singing. Every time we sing, we're speaking to each other about the things we believe. Isn't that interesting that speaking, and now singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. So there's a speaking and a singing that's corporate and external, but there's an internal. It's the music and the joy in your heart to the Lord. If you ask for the filling of the Spirit, He will give you this inner joy that makes music in your heart to the Lord. And then always giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So giving thanks always is part of the Holy Spirit's filling. Giving thanks always. And then submitting to one another out of the fear of Christ. And this is what Pastor Libin is going to develop next, but it's, it's setting aside my personal rights for the flourishing of someone else. The essence of marriage, the essence of parenting, the essence of being an employer and an employee. And Libin is going to talk about that next week. So we decided that we would end with worship today. We have two songs we're going to sing together because singing is speaking to one another of the word of God and of the truths of heaven. And so we're going to do that together. So we're going to actually act out the filling of the Spirit.
But during that time, if you've never asked the Holy Spirit to fill you, you have his presence, he's always with you, you can just put your hands out. You know, this is not a requisite, but this is something I do. I just put my hands out and I, I say, Holy Spirit, would you fill me with your wisdom? Fill me with your love. Maybe you need love. Fill me with your uh, patience. Fill me with the answer I need to know on that test. <laughs> Fill me with whatever you need. And then expect it. Here's the one-two step. You ask intentionally with your left foot, and you live expectantly with your right. So your life is asking for the Spirit's filling, living expectantly that he's providing what you asked for. That beats getting drunk any day. And it's a life that makes you better and makes others better too. And it's a life Jesus designed for us. So let's sing together. You can sit down, you can stand up, you can do whatever you want, and then I'll come back and close the service. But ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you. And he'll do it.